certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. According to the defence, in the case of Sarah Spears, Bradley Edwards should be acquitted, arguing the state cannot come close to proving he was her killer. Hi everyone and welcome to day 93 of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie, Alison and Tim with you for day four of Mr Jovic's closing arguments. And Tim, he began the day by scrutinising the evidence in relation to the night Sarah disappeared. Yeah, that's right, Matt. And in fact, he spent uh, the whole morning um, going through all the aspects of Sarah's case. But that's where he started, because obviously that's where the story started. And he juxtaposed Sarah's last night and where she was and what what time she was there and the people that she was with, who we know uh, all pretty much gave evidence right up to the taxi driver who was supposed to pick her up, um, but unfortunately didn't. And what Mr. Jovic did was then transpose that to the evidence that were given about Mr. Edwards's movements um, on that night or the that the night before that night and then the, the morning after that night and the conclusion that he drew from all of it basically was that logically justice hall should not be able to find that mr edwards could have committed the crime in that uh, window between um, when sarah was um, or when mr edwards was last seen that night um, which was by his first wife his estranged wife and when he was seen the next morning by his work colleagues in that window they say it wasn't logical it wasn't sensible and it wasn't it it couldn't be proved beyond a reasonable doubt that he um, would have or could have committed that crime in that time did justice hall have anything to say about that that window well he did yes because when it was in, in a couple of aspects um he asked Mr. Jovic um, to explain why, it, it, you know, he he was arguing that in, in logical terms. But then he also asked, right, towards the end of that um, window of time, if we're going to call it that, um, Mr. Edwards went to work. And we know that from several of his work colleagues who actually remembered him being at work that day because it was the it was a Saturday, it was the day after a bank holiday, um, and it was a, pic- a particular job that they were doing at Dumas House, which is a quite a prominent um, place of work in Perth. Um, ironically, where a lot of now state government ministers uh, do their work from. Now, one of those colleagues was quite scrupulous in taking notes about who worked and at what time. Um, for various purposes, including overtime purposes for, for himself. And for whatever reason, he kept those notes for, for the, all those years and years and years. And so in those notes, it showed that Mr. Edwards was at Dumas House at 8 a.m. that morning. And and I think everyone in court, um, prosecution and defence and Justice Hall, took that evidence as being the most solid evidence of where Mr. Edwards was on that morning. But then there was some discussion about what he could or would or maybe should have done if he was the killer, what he would have done after um, he had 
taken Sarah, done what he'd done with her and dumped her body, whether he would have, A, on one account, gone to his friends Murray and Bridget's cook's house and then gone to work from there. Um, and if he had done that, that would shorten the window because he would have had to be in a place called Thornley at 7.30 and then be in Perth for 8 o'clock. But the, that evidence was seemed a little bit shaky given the really solid notes that, um, that uh, this other witness had, which said Mr. Cook had been at work at 10 o'clock on that 27th of January, which would have obviously meant that Mr. Edwards and him wouldn't have gone to work together, as it was suggested they might have done. So Justice Hall very aptly and sharply pointed out, well, if that is the case and Mr. and Mrs. Cook's evidence is wrong, that would have extended the window slightly. Mm. Um, So Mr. Edwards would have had then only gone straight to Perth from wherever he was coming from, whether that be from his own house or as one possible scenario might be, he would have come straight from the crime scene. Right. And and focusing on the night before, Ali, what did Mr Jovic say about Bradley Edwards, Edwards' movements that night, the night that Sarah disappeared? Well, I think um, Mr Jovic put it in very, very blunt language. Um, he said, we don't know and you can't speculate. And then he used words very sort of appeal-sounding words like unsafe and errors if we do speculate about the movements that we have no actual facts about, both with Sarah Spears and Bradley Edwards, only what's been told. And he said that the evidence shows that Bradley Edwards' movements that night made him unlikely for him to be responsible for Sarah Spears' death. And it would be quite unsafe if the judge was to consider some of these uh, details when he said... You can't fix the evidence to fit the case. Mm. And he kept hitting that. um, It's all speculation. We don't have a body. We've only got people's ideas of times. And he still insisted that it was highly unlikely that he would have had enough time um, to have done what what he's being accused of. Uh, He then went further into the propensity and said this doesn't fit. One minute the uh, prosecution says this guy has the propensity to do these things. Is it on the other hand? uh, You've made him into, yes, he's a methodical, uh, premeditated, calculated sexual prowler, but he just doesn't go off on a whim and do things, especially coming from the Golden Bay area or down south area, Mm. come up that night knowing he had an early day the next day to start work. Is it... Uh, logical that he would prowl around Claremont and pick somebody up at random when he says if you use the propensity argument you're arguing about a guy who is clearly premeditated and uh, methodical in his dealings with uh, taking someone off the streets. And Tim in in this area of where Mr Edwards was and at what time this mm. was when we first heard about the uh temperature was which was submitted as part of uh the defence case really the only evidence that was submitted as part of the defence case and many people have asked us and emailed us about that what exactly was that Well that was again that goes back to Murray and Brigitte Cook's evidence that Mr. Edwards might have been with them before him and Mr. Cook um, went to work on the 27th. Brigitte Cook's recollection was it was a very hot, uh, had been quite a hot um, spell. The air conditioner, her air conditioner, or the air conditioner in their um, accommodation had, had packed up 
and she remembered that Mr. Edwards um, had gone there or to try and help fix that air conditioner. But the temperature um, chart that Mr. Yovich now <laughs> infamously put in as his <laughs> only piece of evidence said that it wasn't a particularly hot um, spell that that day. So that's what that's all that was about um, um but and and as we've seen um there were notes made made by this other more senior telstra employer at the time um kept um you know very detailed notes about who worked where and when and uh, as it as it turned out today that everyone is, is is pretty willing to accept those as the the most likely the most solid contemporaneous note of of exactly what happened workwise um around that time and then if you go back to the start of the weekend it was mr edwards's wife's account of him coming down there mm. to talk to her uh, and invite her to this fireworks um display on on australia day evening that friday evening um and we know for some very diligent detective work done by one of the detectives in in the in the state library in perth where he looked up all the local newspapers from that area at that time um and the only likely and you know possibly likely fireworks display was in that manager of golden bay area and that, that was due to start at 8 30 p.m that evening so you wouldn't have thought that mr edwards would have invited his wife or, or a strange wife at the time to a fireworks display that had already started he'd been there, he'd been down there for a couple of hours we heard that he'd gone down there they had dinner with her parents it was quite amiable there wasn't an argument or whatever um, but that invite was then rebuffed and that around that time is when mr edwards is said to have left the Golden Bay area and so that is the window that about sort of 8 30 p.m to 8 a.m time stretch um, is when um, he cannot really account for his whereabouts and that's why Mr. Jovic was um, at pains to stress this morning that look this isn't an alibi in the strict sense of the word we cannot say where Mr. Edwards was at the exact moment like 2.04 to 2.12 a.m. that morning but we cannot say where he was but we say that all the other stuff that goes around it, the fact that he had work, the fact that he'd been to Golden Bay, the fact that um, that he he knew all these things, and he'd been separated from his from his wife for for some weeks at that point. Why would he choose that night? That was the argument of Mr. Jovic in a nutshell. Why would he choose that night to do it? And of course, the prosecution hasn't got the you know, the so-called um, emotional upset evidence to fall back on, which is what they originally were going to argue around, yes. that that rebuff from the wife was the emotional trigger that set him off. They've, they've abandoned that. They've, they've discarded that. They've said, we're not going to rely on that anymore. And so they can't. And so Mr. Jovic can then go on and say what he said today is, well, you know, why would he choose that night above all others? Yes, that there's no reason for it. And in terms of we know that that night at three o'clock in the morning, uh, witnesses talked about hearing these blood-curdling screams. Did Mr Jovic uh, raise any doubts about their evidence? He did. He um, Well, he raised the doubts about which direction the screams came from, um, what relevance uh, those witnesses uh, put into what sort of a car was near the telephone box, 
the screaming thing uh, was what he continued on with later on in the day with Jane Rimmer, that if his modus operandi was to gag his victims, as he had already done, or push some sort of cloth into their mouth, um, how were they able to scream? Was he questioning whether the witnesses heard these screams or whether they were hearing the same screams or anything about yes. those details? Yes, he was questioning that. Um, he was, uh, well, we're talking about, first of all, the serious yes. screams in Mosman Park. He pointed out that they came from different directions, or well, that's what the witnesses said. Um, he also pointed out that these recollections came sometime after um, the actual events. Tim, am I right in saying that? Because there mm. didn't seem to be any actual door knocking by the police at the time that produced this evidence. Yeah, um, from uh, from memory, it was when, uh, after Sarah's disappearance, then came major headline news in Perth that these various reports of these various screams started um, filtering in. Um, but even then, when the police, well, we heard again today, that when, when the police did start investigating them, um, the, the investigation maybe wasn't as thorough as it possibly could have been. Um, and this went to, to, to what Mr. Jovich honed in on today was, uh, he said, the most important of all those accounts was a chap called Wayne Stewart. Now, he lived at an apartment block which was uh, off um, the road, um, away from the, the the main stretch of Mosman Park, and it was he and his wife or girlfriend at the time heard these screams. They they were loud enough to wake them up, and they happened to have a balcony, and they went out onto the balcony. And Mr. Stewart said he certainly went out onto the balcony looking for the source of these screams, given the the, the, the nature of them. And what he described was he saw a car, a pale coloured car with slightly curved headlights at the back parked on the wrong side of the road next to a phone box around about 100 metres away. This is what the prosecution have honed in on. And they say that car could well have been Mr Edwards's car because it was similar to the type of station wagon that he was driving at the time. And that could have been the moment where it all went horribly wrong for Sarah in that vehicle, whatever she was doing in there, whether, whether she believed she was getting a lift or whether she'd been... Um, forcibly put into that car um, from the spot she was um, in Claremont. Mr Jovich turned that round today and said there is no way that um, Justice Stephen Hall could be any way convinced that that car was Mr Edwards's car or even that car was any way connected to the screams because all you have is one witness hearing one thing, seeing another putting it together in his mind because they're two slightly odd occurrences in Mosman Park on that night. Um, but Mr. Jovic's argument was it doesn't go anywhere near as far um, as it needs to in establishing um, Mr. Edwards's identity um, uh, because they can't say the make of car, they can't say the colour of car. He didn't see anyone that looked even remotely like Mr. Edwards or Sarah Spears in that area at that time. So all he's done is, in Mr. Jovic's eyes, um, project um, or conflate two things, two odd occurrences together and then attach the significance to them because of Sarah's disappearance and what the police say um, 
which where she was going uh, on the night she disappeared, which was Mosburn Park. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting because we've talked many times about how this case is like a massive jigsaw puzzle and putting all these pieces together. But what's really interesting about Mr Jovic's um, submission is he is saying none of these pieces fit and going through these pieces one by one and saying, you see this piece? It doesn't fit. And this one here, that doesn't fit either. Mm, well, that's yeah, right. I mean, what is... Yeah, go on, Ali. No, no, I was just saying, and Justice Hall even pointed out, they, they talked and they made much of the case that the car was facing the wrong way uh, and was right next to the phone box. And um, I think Justice Hall was saying, well, or someone was raising the fact that at 2.30 in the morning, the fact that the car was facing the wrong way, but the fact that it was near a phone box made it seem like the car had stopped there for someone to, to make a phone call. So um, that you know that was just a query raised by um, Justice Hall. Yeah, Mr. Jovic also used the logic argument in that little section of evidence as well, saying, "Well, if you were, if you did have a car, uh, a, a young lady that you'd either subdued or were hoping to subdue, or had attacked or were hoping to attack um, in your car, uh, why would you then stop?" at a, quite a, a, a prominent intersection, which is well lit, that has a phone box next to it, why would you choose that conspicuous or somewhat conspicuous spot out of all the others that you'd potentially driven past and could potentially drive to? Why would you yeah. choose that spot mm. to then potentially do the thing that, that caused the screams? Um <laughs> that doesn't bear up, up to any logic as well. But then, you know, you flash back to Miss Barbara Gallo last week. Her contention to that was, well, we're not talking about potentially logical acts in the first place. We're talking about young women being snatched off the street um, with a sexual motive and being murdered. Trying to put a sense of logic around that um, might not be the right way to look at it. So... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it is very interesting that the, the diametrically opposite um, polls that the, 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 these two accounts um, are bringing out in, in both sides and, and that they are desperately both trying to pull Justice Hall in one way or another <laughs> That's um, right. to, 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 to get him to fall on their side. And uh, I'm just curious if, um, you know, arguments today were quite sensitive around the topics being discussed and with Mr Jovic, you know, really arguing that, you know, the, the state has no case, that this is purely speculation. Was he quite sensitive about that, given that family members are in the courtroom? Yes, absolutely. He did say that um, this doesn't take away the fact that an innocent, blameless young woman was the victim of a terrible, grave crime. And But he did say that uh, the memory of this crime won't serve justice if the wrong man is convicted, which was quite a strong statement. Mm. Um, he, 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 he said, you know, you, you convict the wrong man, it's not going to bring, do anything for her memory um, and not diminishing from the actual crime itself. Yeah, and I saw a picture um, on the west.com.au taken by West photographer Nick Ellis of Don Spears leaving court during the lunch break, and I guess it really hit me at just how harrowing this must be for him today. Yeah, it must be, because like the families of um, Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon, um, Don and, and his wife and, and Sarah's immediate family and friends, they've all waited 
more than 25 years, or more than 24 years, nearly 25 years, for their ordeal um, to hopefully have some answers at the end of it. And um, I firmly remember when Mr Edwards was finally charged with Sarah's murder, which was some time after he was charged with Jane and Kira's murder, um, Mr Spears um, put up a, a, a statement on his social media um, just assuring everyone that, you know, the, the family was okay, they were, they were coping okay, but they were, they were waiting for answers. Now, now, I'm sure today would have been the polar opposite of that, mm. hearing mm. the man that is defending the man that the state says has killed his daughter, um, basically trying uh, everything he possibly could to to um, to pull apart um, that those potential answers and create more questions in the meantime. In that, if it isn't Mr. Edwards that has done these these things, and uh, who is it? Um, and if the verdict. Um, doesn't go the way that the, the, the Spears family hope it will, um, then those those questions are going to remain for for uh, potentially a very very long time. Yeah, and I think as you've both mentioned that you know the families are very supportive of one another. Absolutely, absolutely. That that that's been the one thing that has struck me consistently, and and, and actually strengthened over the time covering the trial and and. Inevitably, um, you know the, the the legal quarter in Perth isn't that isn't that large. There are a few cafes that we all frequent um, up and down Hay Street, and and um, you know you're you're literally all walking in the same circles at lunchtime, um, mm. and so you see things, and you just and well, what I've seen is is the Spears family and the Glennon family, Don and, and Dennis. Um, engaged in long conversations. I've seen the victims of Huntingdale and Karakata sharing lunch together with the the um, brother, you know, the, the the police officers that have that have um, helped guide them through the trial, and um, the same with the Rimmer family with Adam Jane's brother, uh, and you know, a, a cross pollination of all those um, all those relationships. They they are they are obviously leading all leaning on each other in, in, in various ways to try and get through it all. Yeah. Um, which, um, yeah, uh, you hope is, is, is some comfort, but you also, um, you know, wonder whether they, they would ever want to meet um, in, in, obviously, in, in better circumstances. Yes. They would want to meet. You, 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 you're sure of that. Absolutely. And um, Mr. Jovich then moved on to the night Jane Rimmel disappeared. And, and did he shed any light on Bradley Edwards' movements on that particular night? Um, well, not as, I mean, he couldn't uh, as much as he had um, for um, Sarah's um, uh, disappearance. The only thing he could um, safely and confidently say was that the, not the day before, leading up to Jane's disappearance that Mr. Edwards had played um, a game of softball um, with some with some friends of his um, but that was as far as he could go so that window if you want to if you want to put it in a window is a lot wider mm -hmm. and his movements are a lot um, less known um, so the, the that sort of 
half alibi or almost alibi, that isn't available for Ms. Rimmer. Um, and we know also, and you will come to this tomorrow, the forensic evidence, the physical evidence, in fact, on Jane is a lot stronger, um, obviously, than Sarah because her remains, unfortunately, have not been discovered. So, but he began today uh, on Ms. Rimmer's, um, the, you know, the sort of circumstantial um, things around that night, including the screams that were heard in Wellard and um, including the knife that was found um, in Wellard on the same day um, that Jane's body um, was discovered. Um, and so those are the two main areas that he that he focused on. Um, and I've got to say, I mean, I don't know if you agree with me or not, Ali, I, I thought his arguments um, against the logic of him killing Sarah were a lot stronger than the arguments that he came up with to try and um, throw a little bit of doubt or a little bit of shade on the case um, of, of him against Jane. Yes, he just he seemed to um, concentrate again on the screams and uh, whether they were the same screams heard by the two various parties. Um, he, he again repeated what he said in the Sarah Spears case that um, were they indeed the screams of uh, these victims? Uh, were they indeed the same person? Uh, and that's what he seemed to focus on. Yeah, and then, then the propensity as well. Propensity. So again, mm. he, yeah, and then he returned to this notion that well, the caricature that the rape victim was gagged. She was, um, un- you know, she was encumbered. She was tied up. Um, uh, you know, she was completely within Mr. Edwards's power, and that's what they've gone back to a couple of times. Whereas, obviously, if we take the screams in Wellard to be Jane, well, she well she wasn't gagged. Look at her um, uh, physical injuries, including the defensive wounds. That would suggest that she was able to put her hands up to defend herself. Um, mm. And um, she was obviously taken a long way away from Perth, or 40 kilometres away, whereas in the Karakata offence, um, although the, the drive was long, the actual distance away was very short. It was, it was a matter of minutes away. So he's pointed to those differences and again said, well, if you want to use a propensity argument, i.e., look what he did at Karakata, and he must have done the same thing to Jane. Well, well, look, he didn't do the same thing to Jane. There were marking mm. differences. And, in fact, he used the, you know, he said you have to do contortions to try and get those two um, cases to fit. And so he said that's why you can't be sure that the, the man knows who's done um, Karakata, done the rape thing, um, did um, the, the, the murder um, in, in June '96. Yeah, and he he um, uh, talked about the Telstra pocket knife that was found the same day that Jane's body was discovered, and in a way, uh, I guess he suggested the discovery of this knife could actually point to someone other than Edwards. How did he explain that theory? Well, he explained about the numbers of Telstra knives that are around. What are there four thousand or so? Uh, that this one has never been shown to contain. That people have asked about this and a contention that's a murder weapon, but it's never produced any um, evidence that it was. It was tested too late or found too late. or um, it, that, That's always been a bit confusing as far as the Telstra knife. When the, when the prosecution maintained it was uh, had, had to have the potential of a murder weapon, but if, if it made the cuts that um, the pathologists have said that the wounds were caused by this knife, surely that would have shown some sort of blood residue? 
Well, uh, according to Brendan Chapman in one of the previous episodes, we asked him this very question and he said not necessarily. Mm. Yeah, but the bottom line is that the, the prosecution haven't even suggested it. That's right. There's no evidence about it. I mean, in fact, quite the opposite. There, were, there was extensive analysis done on that knife and nothing could be found from either mm. Mr. Edwards or Miss Rimmer. So there was no possible way they could suggest it was the murder weapon because that would just never stand up to any scrutiny. But what, what Miss Barbara Gallo said in her closings last week were it's just a it's a very strange coincidence that there's no particular works, Telstra works, pipes, um, telephone poles, anything done in that area over over a, a long time um, before that um, instant, before Jane's murder and then her body discovery. So why and how would that knife have got there in 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 pretty good condition in in, in such a sort of odd place to find such a thing and then lo and behold less than a kilometer away jane's body is discovered the suggestion made by Ms. barbara gala was possibly it was either thrown away or it has inadvertently fallen out when mr edwards is committing these crimes but then to counter that mr jovich he went after that this afternoon quite hard and said well that for someone who's done that to then throw away a potentially incriminating Criminating piece of evidence is just illogical. It's out, outlandish, was the way he described it. It would be an outland, outlandish thing to do. Um, and the, and then, as you said, he went one step further than that and said, "Well, you know, so if it is Mr. Edwards, there was a. There's no real evidence that he even had one of these knives or was issued one of these knives. If it wasn't his, and he wouldn't have thrown it away, um, then you know." Maybe it's someone else. Maybe yeah. it belonged to someone else. And then if it did belong to someone else, well, then what, what, what were they doing in that area at that time? Um, and ju- ju- Justice Hall summed it all up, really. Uh, he said right at the end of the day, he said, this is a, a beguiling piece of evidence because it was where it was found and because of when it was found, um, it's beguiling, which I thought was a, 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 a particularly um, judicial word to use. Um, you know, it's it's an intriguing, it's tempting mm. to look into yes. it and, and find more than it is actually. But even, where does it go? Where does it go? Where does it fit? And it goes back to your analogy, Nat, of the jigsaw puzzle. And Mr. Jovic, you know, painting the picture of Miss Barbara Gallo trying to hammer j- jigsaw pieces in when they really don't fit. And, and I think... I think Justice Hall has come to the conclusion that this is a piece of the jigsaw. He's just not going to fit anywhere in anything that's going to really help him. But it's obviously one of those things that when we heard it, we thought, oh, my gosh, there's a knife to Telstra. You know, this is it. This this could be the key to the whole thing. But, no, it's just going to be one of those odd bits of evidence that is probably not going to fit anywhere and probably won't be fit into any verdict one way or the other, I don't think. That's right. And it is one of those things where you scratch your head and say, well, what are the chances? And that's exactly the point Ms. Barbagallo was making. In terms of the... um, the numbers of knives out there, I think the number issued between 1993 and 1996 were 58,900 pocket knives. But if you do want to hear uh, more about that particular evidence, it's episode 15 of the podcast, which is The Grim Discovery. So, Ali, was there any other points that you found interesting today? Well, I found it interesting um, that both um, Mr Jovic and the judge 
did talk about the way that the bodies were uh, buried, or not buried rather, that Sarah Spears' body has never been found. So it's been so well concealed that it's never been found, whereas the other two were just left with um, bushes, maybe a branch over them that Jane's body could even be seen from the road. Uh, Kira Glennon's was again just covered by shrub, enough that any walk people walking by could see both of them. And he brought that up only in the, uh, I guess, issue of the timing that um, the Sarah Spears' disappearance and um, Bradley Edwards' timing that night, that if he did do the Sarah Spears, he must have concealed the body much more carefully so that it's never been found, whereas the other two were very, very just casually um, camouflaged. That contrasted with what Miss Barbara Gallo had argued last week in, in that um, the discovery of Jane and particularly Kira, she said, was almost miraculous. It's very, very fortunate for both of them to be found, particularly Kira, um, in that sort of um, sandy bush area up in Eglinton. And, and, and Jane's body, as Ali said, it was only three metres, four metres off the road, but it's obviously hidden well enough that it, it lasted it, it was able to be to lay there for 55 days um undiscovered so again you you got the you you know you got the two ends of the magnet sort of just pulling <laughs> justice oh, Hall yeah. one way and the other um on the one hand saying well you know he's he's got so little time and he's done apparently such a good job with sarah um that that, that she's never been found um but miss barbara gallo then saying well it's only blind luck that the other two girls were found as well. That's right. And, you know, there's no doubt that the discovery of both of those bodies were really the result of a, you know, extremely unusual set of coincidences. Yeah, well, and that's exactly uh, Miss Barbara Gallo's um, argument um, in that, you know, he, uh, they might, if if not for a, a rogue chicken yes. and, a, and a bloke picking cannabis um, out in the middle of nowhere... Um, they, all three girls might might still be um, missing. I think the reason that both these closing submissions are taking so long is that the questions that um, Justice Hall is asking and clarifying and scrutinising and analysing as we go is making this um, quite a long <laughs> wrap-up. Absolutely. And, and tomorrow it continues. Um, and I expect, will Mr. Jovic tomorrow talk about the night Kira disappeared? He will. Um, that's, that, that will be in the morning. Um, and then the dreaded F word in the afternoon, I'm afraid, Matt. Yes. Um, that's what we'll, we'll, we will get to. Um, that will be um, a large chunk of what is left for Mr. Jovic to go through. I think there was a little, um, a, a, a gentle little... Um, a question right at the end of um, Mr. Yovich as to how long he thinks he might be. He said he hopes Thursday um, will be um, his his last day. Wow. Um, which will be the trial's last day. Yeah. And that really will be a marathon, um, you know, closing argument. Well, thank you both very much for your time today. Alison and Tim will both be back in court tomorrow and we hope to have you back with us tomorrow for day 94 of Claremont in Conversation. We look forward to you joining us then. This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo 
Produced by Kate Ryan and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune into WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.